if you felt through the singing that we were going on a journey, take my hand, he leadeth me. We thought it was fitting for Exodus chapter 13 and 14. At one point during World War II, over 400,000 British and French troops were trapped with their backs to the English Channel, surrounded on three sides by German panzer and ground troops. Winston Churchill, speaking to the House of Commons, called the situation a colossal military disaster, saying the whole root, the whole core, and the whole brain of the British Army is stranded at Dunkirk. A national day of prayer was declared throughout the UK for the deliverance of the troops. And the next day, May 27th, 1940, Churchill ordered Operation Dynamo. Several warships made the crossing multiple times under enemy fire, delivering troops from Dunkirk to the safety, uh, to safety in England. But many thousands of troops were unable to be reached by the deep drafted warships. And so a search was made around the UK. And that search call was answered. 700 civilian vessels with shallow draft were enlisted. Think small fishing boats, lifeboats, river boats, yachts, all with unprofessional civilian crews making the crossing back and forth under fire. The little ships of Dunkirk, as they've come to be called, helped to rescue in total 331,226 soldiers from the German armies. And Churchill speaking to Parliament on the last day of evacuation, June 4th, gave his infamous, we shall fight on beaches, speech in which he said that Operation Dynamo was a miracle of deliverance. Miracle of deliverance. You see, Dunkirk was, continues to be a stunning victory in the face of what seemed to be a most certain defeat. And if you're familiar with the story found in Exodus 13 and 14, I believe our story is similar, though even more stunning of a deliverance than what was found at Dunkirk. This morning, we joined the people of God who were triumphantly marching out of Egyptian oppression for one reason, the mighty hand of God. God has delivered them. They are a free people. And they have something that potentially they've not had in centuries. They've had hope for their future. They knew that in leaving Egypt, they would be heading towards the land that God had promised earlier in Genesis chapter 15. I would encourage you to look there, Genesis 15, 18 18 through 21, just to be reminded of God's promise And so as they begin their march, their march takes a most unexpected turn that leads to a chain of events that would lead to the stunning deliverance of God's people. If you were with us a few months ago, 
as we were walking through Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and just thinking about how God had delivered Moses. Moses' mom had put him in the Nile River. And we noted that what began then, Exodus chapter 2, 1 through 10, with God pulling his deliverer out of the water, will continue this morning as God, con- as God delivers his people through the water. And so Exodus 2, 1 through 10, God's stunning deliverance of his deliverer, Moses. Exodus 13, 14, God's stunning deliverer of his people. One from the water, another through the water. And when we come to passages like this, uh, if you've grown up anywhere near the church, this would be a story that you are, are familiar with. Um, you probably have had this read to you. Perhaps you've read it to others. And I pray that your familiarity with the account, maybe it's your favorite movie, The Ten Commandments. I pray that your familiarity with the movie doesn't erode your ability to stand in awe and wonder this morning at the God who delivers in a most stunning of fashions. And here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, there's something in your heart that resonates. You know what it's like to be the recipient of the most stunning deliverance. And so let's pray as we ask the Lord that he would be glorified in and through our time together. Our holy God, we praise you. We praise you for grace and mercy. Charlie mentioned it earlier, we have a desperate need for you and oftentimes we don't feel it, but it's true. And so we pray that as we approach your word, you would grant us faith to believe, that we would have eyes to see, that we would be able to hear glorious truths, and we would have our hearts changed by them. God, as we approach what may be a familiar passage, would you help us see it afresh? Would you teach us anew? And would we walk away changed? So do more in this time than I can do. We beg you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open to Exodus chapter 13. The passage that you just heard read, the ending of chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. If you need a Bible, I'd encourage you to open one in front of you. You have two, the ESV or the New American Standard. I will be preaching from the New American Standard. This is helpful because the supernatural, miraculous acts of God, it's helpful for you to know this is not something I'm making up. So Exodus chapter 13. Last week we saw that as God's people began to set out in their freedom march from Egypt, that God encouraged his people to remember a few memorials that would serve really two purposes. It would help them to remember their deliverance, but it would also help them teach future generations to know about God's deliverance. And so in the same way, why is it that we come back to the Bible? Why is it that we go back to the 
rhythms and the routines in the Christian life. It's to help us remember what Christ has done and to help us teach others to remember what he's done. In the first verse of our passage that we heard read, verse 17, really verses 17 and 18, were clued into the unexpected nature of this exodus. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. If you and I were to open Google Maps, or better yet, if we were to gaze upon the first edition of a Charlie Jackson produced map, what we would find, this is not Google Maps, just for the record, this is a Charlie Jackson, okay. What we would find is that the quickest route from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan really followed the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. It was along this route known as the Via Maris. And so certainly God's people are thinking as they are beginning to march out of slavery, march out of oppression, that they're going to cross over and they're going to take the route that would get them there the shortest and the quickest. If we were to go back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 37, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sakath. If you were to look at then Exodus chapter 13, verse 20, where do they go? They go from Ramses to Sakath. And then where do they go? Verse 20, they set out from Sakath and then camped in Etham. And so you see this trajectory isn't over straight, kind of a straight line towards the promised land. They begin to go south. And we'll see in 14.2 where the Lord tells Moses to tell the sons of Israel to turn back and to camp before Pi, Hiroth. Between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. And you just begin to think about this. Wait a minute. God, 430 years, you finally bring them to deliverance. You're prom you've promised them a land that they will go to, and yet the Lord doesn't lead them the shortest route there. Why? Well, we were told in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 13. Because they would have had to come across the land of the Philistines, which would have meant war. These were not tested warriors. They were tired slaves. And while they marched out in martial array, they were not ready to engage in war. Both war with Egypt along the way as they had guarded this way, the Philistines, and then even when they reach the promised land, they have war against the Canaanites that's waiting on them. And so this heavenly detour that, we've, that we see is really confirmed because once they finally reach Canaan, Numbers chapter 14 verse 4 tells us that they see their enemies. And you know what they say? Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Think about this. This was not the route that they were expecting. And yet the Lord took into account their weaknesses, their limitations, their frame. God is overwhelmingly kind and merciful. 
that even in his providence of how things unfold, he takes into account his people's weaknesses. Psalm 103 verse 14 really is a gift of mercy. For he himself knows our frame. And he is mindful that we are but dust. You see, God is showing his particular unique knowledge of and care for and providence over his people, even in how he planned the route out of slavery. He doesn't send them on the shortest way. Now, what we know is Israel is going to go and they're going to get into the wilderness. and They're going to complain against the Lord. They're going to complain against the Lord about the route that was taken. Lord, you've left us out in the wilderness to die. The reason that God took them on the route that seemed hard to them was so that it would have been easier on them. That we sing songs like, He leadeth me and take my hand, and whate'er my God ordains is right. We sing how firm a foundation because we really do believe that God is a help to his people in times of trouble. But I wonder how often we stop and we consider that however hard the road is that God has led us on, there is another route that we could be on that would completely undo us. There is a mercy that is to be found on the road that we are walking. Why? Because he in his sovereign providence has orchestrated the path. And in orchestrating the path, he has kept your frame in mind. God knows you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your limitations. And while the path is at times long and hard, we can trust that it's, most, that it's most for his glory, which means it's also most for our good. And so perhaps you're here this morning and you're awaiting the results of the test. Or perhaps you're staring yet again at another conflict. Or perhaps it's the wrestling of the pain of unrealized longings and you're pleading for the season to end we just encourage you consider the perspective of a God who can see what you cannot see and trust his character that he would not he would not put you in a place in which he has not first considered you This passage is meant to comfort us, particularly when our lives don't unfold according to our preference and our plans. And so regardless of the route that the Lord has seen fit to bring you on to lead you to this point in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can sit with gratitude and you can sing with gladness. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. How? How in the world is it that you've made it through those things? Tis grace that brought me safe thus far. 
and grace will lead me home. And so at this point in the story, we're beginning to see the most unexpected of turns. And the Exodus march begins to take us in places that were not they were not planned. They're unexpected. They're shocking. They're surprising to us. And so we can cue the appropriate background music as the drama continues to unfold and the tension continues to heighten. And we're given in verse 19 what seems to be this unnecessary detail about Moses taking the bones of Joseph with him because of a promise that was made earlier in Genesis chapter 50. And yet, even this seemingly unnecessary detail is meant to remind the hearer that God is faithful to his people. Genesis 50, 24 through 26, tells the story of Joseph's death. And all along, right before he dies, Joseph believed that God would be true to his word. Joseph was told that Israel, that the people would become slaves But he also was told that God would deliver. He would take his people out of the the land of slavery. And he said to his brothers, you take me out. Like whenever I go and my bones, don't don't drop me in Egypt. Take my bones and I want to be buried in the land that God has promised. And what do we find? 430 years in this land foreign land, oppressed. God has kept his promise to Abraham. And he brings his people to the promised land. In fact, Joseph in Hebrews chapter 11, sort of the hall of fame of faith chapter, he's commended for even bringing this up. Having the faith, not on the basis of anything that he could see, but the faith based on the character of the God who made the promise. And so as Moses carries these bones, it would have been a reminder for all who, that trusting in the God of Joseph was the right way forward. Friends, this God is still worthy of all trust and honor. This God still keeps every one of his promises. And so if he's made a promise... He will uphold it. And how fitting then that this divinely directed route was made known through a divinely displayed sign. Verses 21 and 22. What do we read? That the Lord was going with them, a pillar of cloud by day to lead them, and a pillar of fire at night to give them light. One massive pillar... A cloud during the day, and the cloud housed a fire in the evening. This, this visible appearance is what theologians will call a theophany. This visible manifestation, a visible appearing of God. It's an outward display of the inward glory. One scholar And author Vern Poitras says there is significance in the clouds all throughout Scripture. Sometimes the cloud has the primary function of concealing God. But here it has the function of 
revealing God. And both functions match the character of God. Human beings never master God or know him exhaustively. And the cloud is a reminder of all human limitations. And yet here in Exodus, we see God drawing near and establishing communion with his people. They couldn't behold his glory. And so he appears in the cloud. God comes near to his people in a cloud to usher them out of Egypt. Why? In order to guide them, but also in order to protect them. Who would not love a heavenly GPS like this? They could travel day and night, divinely provided sunscreen during the day, divinely provided space heater in the evening. And all they had to do was look up. Where do we go? Look up. Follow the pillar. And if they looked up, they would have behold this visible demonstration, not only of God's power, but also his nearness and the special relationship that God has with his people. He got them out of Egypt. And the pillar is a reminder that he will be with them every step along the way. And let's just be honest. We read this and we think, And we even may have conversations with people that would go something like, man, I would love this kind of guidance. Like, give me this pillar type guidance and I'll follow the Lord wherever he calls me to go. Like anytime I have a big decision to make, it would just be sweet to have the pillar leading me. Leave your house, look up, just follow the pillar. And yet the Bible says that we have something, we Christians have something that's far superior than a pillar of fire. This cloud is a preview of the glory of God. And that glory would be made known, John 1.14 tells us, when Jesus comes... And Jesus now would serve as our guide and our protector. And Jesus tells us in John 16, I have to go. And he's talking about returning to heaven. Why in the world does Jesus have to go back to heaven? Because in Jesus going, he will send the Holy Spirit who will then guide us and protect us. Not externally from without, but internally. It's not only the coming of Jesus in which he draws near to us to show us his presence, but it's also the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which which he makes God to be present with us, comforting us, strengthening us, guiding us, stabilizing us, giving us peace when there's no earthly reason for peace. If you are a Christian, be reminded the good news of the gospel isn't just that your sins are forgiven. But it's also that God himself dwells within you. You are not alone. Praise be to God. The twist becomes even more explicit in the first two verses of chapter 14. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi-Hahiroth. 
between Migdal and the sea, you shall camp in front of Baal Zephon opposite, opposite it by the sea. Again, unexpected reversal in direction. Tells the people, go back down. And he tells them to camp. And what would have been a most unexpected move. Here's the thing. You don't need to have a background in military strategy to know that if you are fleeing, you don't camp with a sea to your back, desert around you, and one way of escape. That would be a death sentence. And yet the Lord explains to Moses why this most unexpected of turns. Listen, verses 3 and 4. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. It's all a divinely designed setup. The Lord is the master. Pharaoh is his pawn, and he is about to checkmate Pharaoh. As Egypt would be patrolling the borders of the nation, they would notice the most unusual of movements by this people. What seemed to be a strange route, they begin to conclude is actually no route, and they're lost. They're confused. It appears that they're disoriented. And that news gets back to Pharaoh. And all of it is orchestrated because of the Lord. The Lord is going to set up one final climactic humiliation. Why, verse 4? So that the Egyptians and Pharaoh and all his army will know that I am the Lord. He does this all so that he would be appropriately glorified as the one who is over all. He does this so his renown and his name, it wouldn't be mocked. It would be revered. It would be honored. Moses doesn't know how it's all going to go down. And I read this, and I'm just reminded that God pursues his glory. I'm so thankful for the radical God-centeredness of God. The most God-centered person in the whole universe is God himself. And that's good news because God himself and his God-centeredness is the only way for us to be able to avoid the radical self-centeredness to which our hearts are naturally inclined. You see, we will take something like the gift of our faith and we will make it all about me and our best life and all about our comfort and our ease and our self-improvement. And we'll reduce the gospel to just something that that helps me become the better version of me. Praise be to God 
that the Christian God is not all about me. He's most all about himself. Which then, if he's going to do good to me, he wraps me up in that. When he is most God-centered, that is most good for me. God does all things for his glory. And that breaks the endlessly repeating and frankly exhausting loop of self-centeredness that each of us are enslaved to. God being radically God-centered is good news. And it's that glory that he pursues even in this most unexpected of ways. Pharaoh is informed and he regrets even letting the people go. Verse 5. Pharaoh has a change of heart. Remember, we saw him kind of get out of here, get out of here, go ahead and leave at the end of 13. Go ahead and leave and bless me along the way. And we think, oh, maybe that was repentance. And then we come here and we go, no, no, no. His heart is yet again hardened. He arrogantly continues to assume that he has ownership over the people of God. And so what does he do? Verse 6. So he made his chariot ready and he took his people with him. And he took 600 select chariots. This would have been the most devastating instrument of death in war at the time. And all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. The Egyptians, verse 9, chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. You began to, you can feel the tension of the moment. The sight must have been formidable. Verse 10, as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they became very frightened. Why were they very frightened? Number one, because they saw this impressive display of might and force coming at them, but also because they had nowhere else to go. This pillar led them to a place that put them in the most vulnerable of spots. I mean, you can imagine being among the number and seeing them coming and looking and seeing the sea and then looking at your loved ones and this is it. And what do they begin to say? Verses 11 and 12. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way? Bringing us out of Egypt. Tim Keller says, listening to this conversation can only be described as delusional because the people of God have seemingly just forgotten that the Lord has just done 10 miraculous plagues, signs and wonders to get them to this place. And there's no consideration that God may have a way for them to get out. Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt? Verse 12. 
saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel was not expecting this. They didn't have scouts that were looking around, getting ready to tell the nation that there was an army that's coming. Who among them would have ever thought that the Lord would have brought them to this place? Sea, army, pillar, not moving. Just maybe. Maybe we've reached the end of all of the Lord's power. All right, maybe we've just exhausted every bit of anything left up his sleeve. Psalm 106 verse 7 calls, calls this bluntly sin. They rebelled by the sea. Moses is the convenient target. And they say, Moses, it's your fault. And sadly, this complaining will be a recurring refrain. They were viewing their present circumstances without any reference to the fact that God has just acted miraculously to deliver them from Egypt. He brought them here. And we can look at them and just go, you fools. Because we know what's going to happen. And yet in their uncertainty, they complained. They ran straight to God. This is what you're doing wrong. Not God, this is what you have done right. I can't help but think that's a very similar sentiment that we find ourselves in. God, I don't know why I'm here, but let me just list to you everything that you have done wrong in bringing me here. As opposed to saying, God, let me just remind myself of everything that you've done right. Everything that you've done. And I think Moses' response is so commendable. Verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. This is not, this is, the tone of this is not one of comfort. The tone of this is correction and exhortation. I believe this is one of Moses' finest moments. He lifts up his voice. He corrects the voices of others. And what's he tell them? Fear not. Stand firm. Watch for his salvation. And be silent. The Lord will fight for you. This is, this is the first time this theme of the Lord as the divine warrior is being introduced. And it will be prominent as history unfolds itself. God will fight for his people. And a fight is about to break out between the Lord and Pharaoh. That's why he brought them to this most humanly impossible situation. Because he always, he always exhausts human limitations. He always exhausts human uh, abilities 
so that it's clear who's fighting this battle. We're about to see the Lord in opposition to those who are hostile towards him. And he will destroy his enemies. And in the destruction of some, there's also a rescue for many. Fear not. The frequency of this command, Bob said a few weeks ago, just command, uh, aside from remember, fear not. The frequency of this command reveals God's care for us because he knows us. He knows the inclination is to not live by faith, but to be enslaved to our sight. So in this moment where that's put to the test, the people are shepherded. Fear not. Stand firm. There is, there is an impulse within every human because we are born with a nature of sin and yet created to be in communion with God. And that break has created an impulse within all of us to want to work to earn. Stand firm. Watch and wait. Soon will be time to move. But for now, they are to not jump into the fight. They are to watch the Lord fight for them. This is one of the most difficult commands to obey. To wait. I remember a couple of months ago, Lance Parrott came and preached here, and he talked about waiting on the Lord, being less like a daiquiri in a hammock, and more like holding a plank position. Just Spurgeon puts it this way: I dare say to, you, I dare say you will think it's very, it's a very easy thing to stand still. But it's one of the postures which a Christian soldier learns, not without years of teaching. I find that marching and quick marching are much easier to God's warriors than standing still. It is perhaps the first thing we learn in the drill of human armies, but it's one of the most difficult things to learn under the captain of our salvation. Stand fast, and having done that, stand still. To stand still in the midst of tribulation shows something of your experience of God's grace. And perhaps you find yourself this morning in the midst of a perplexing and painful set of circumstances. You've been carried down a route that you were not anticipating. And as you look to the heavens, God seems to be indifferent. He seems to be silent. He seems to be absent. How is it that it's possible? How can we stand still when the circumstances of life seem to require us to do something? And yet I'm just supposed to believe that God is going to do something for me. And I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about let go and let God theology. Right? You don't have... You are responsible for sharing the gospel. You are not responsible for seeing others respond to it. And so make sure in your standing still that you're not just thinking, right, God's going to do everything. 
No, but there is this aspect of going, I understand that I leave to God what only God can do. I seek to be faithful. And then I trust God to do what only he can do. How is it that we're able to stand? How can we know that he will fight for us? Friends, this is how we know because we read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes. And as we read the Old Testament with New Testament eyes, what we know is that he has indeed fought for his people. And he has been victorious. Colossians chapter 2 makes it clear. You, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so we read this with New Testament eyes and we say, how can we know that he's going to fight for us? Because he has fought the most decisive battle for us. It's an argument from the greater to the, the lesser. If, if he's done this, then surely he's not going to leave us alone in these small things. The Lord of glory worked for us and he fought for us on the cross to the point of shedding his own blood. The once for all sacrifice for sin. And so when the impulse is to, I need to do something. We see the impulse of faith says, let me ensure that I'm not trying to fight battles that only God can win. And then we reach the remainder of this passage, verses 15 through 31. And this event helps us even look ahead to a future exodus that has implications for every person in this room. The people have been delivered from Egypt. They've now been intentionally trapped by their God with no apparent means of escape as the Egyptian army is descending upon them. How is it that the Lord is going to rescue them? Well, after Moses has, says, has said, do not fear, stand firm, watch the salvation of the Lord. And then he just says, You're, you just be silent. Let him do his fighting. We hit verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. Stunning deliverance of God's people. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them. And I will be honored through, the, through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God, remember that pillar that's been leading them along the way, who had been going before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. 
So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. Remember, the camp of Israel, or the camp of Egypt has already caught up to Israel. And there was a cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Moses doesn't know how this is all going to play out. But going forward was not going to be a simple task because there are some two million plus people with livestock. Oh yeah, and they're heading towards the Red Sea. And this staff that the Lord has used to symbolize the power of God and has gotten much use thus far is now called upon for its greatest act. Moses says, Guys, we're heading for the sea. I imagine if you were there, you would not have been the first one in. They see this for what it is. This is our march towards death. No one knew that this was in the divine playbook. They weren't sitting around going, we're going to go because this is going to be in the Bible. (laughs) The Lord tells Moses, this is how it's going to go down. And all kinds of divine activity begins to break out. And what do we see? We see God at his best when there appears to be no hope, humanly speaking. How is it that the Egyptian army didn't overtake God's people? Well, it was because of that pillar. It went from before, in front of them to behind them, provided darkness for the Egyptians, provided light for God's people. Can you imagine what's the, what this must have been like to witness two million strong heading to the sea An angel of God moving from leading to going behind to protect. Darkness envelops the Egyptians. Israel has light. I would have been distracted at the command to pack up and hit the road. Verse 21, it's clear what's about to take place. This wasn't an option that that was predicted or anticipated. It's yet another dramatic demonstration of God's power over that which he created. And we look at this and, we're, and, and our minds are blown that he has this kind of power over creation. And this is easy for him. And it's another reversal of, of creation. He turns back the sea and creates dry land. I, I wonder what it must have been like to experience verse 22. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land. The waters were like a wall to them on their left and to their right. I wonder if anyone just did, just the wall, can can we touch it? Parents keeping their kids don't run into the wall. A massive body of water suddenly split into, some scholars say, would have been around a mile and a half wide in order to get two million plus people plus animals to go through during the last night or last watch of the night between 2 and 6 a.m. 
Donald Bridge tells the story of a liberal preacher, a certain point preaching on this passage. He talked about Israel crossing the Red Sea. Praise the Lord, someone shouted. Taking all them children through the deep waters. What a mighty miracle. However, however, because this minister didn't believe in the supernatural, he said rather condescendingly, this was not a miracle. They were in marshland. The tide was ebbing, the flowing. The children of Israel picked their way across some six inches of water. To which the same voice cried, Praise the Lord, drowning all them Egyptians in six inches of water. Psalm 77 describes the change, verses 16 through 20. Just everything that's happening. Israel is passing through on dry land, but not the Egyptians. He caused, verse 25, he caused their chariot wheels to swerve and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel. The Egyptians are standing in the walled water of the Red Sea and they realize, hey, maybe God is for them. So let's turn around, but they can't turn around because their wheels are bogged down. Axes are broken, frightened horses and soldiers and thunder and lightning. And what we're seeing is there is this fight that's unfolding and it's a clear mismatch. It's a rout, devastating and humiliating defeat. It's divine justice in response to even Pharaoh's attempts to kill the firstborn into the Nile. And we remember God calling all throughout his the Old Testament, his people, Israel, were his firstborn. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, verse 27, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. And the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone on into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. While there was devastating judgment for some because of their sin against a holy God, there was salvation for others. The same event that brought forth the judgment waters of wrath were also the provision through which some would make it safely and be rescued. And in a stunning statement in verse 30, it's as if Israel gets to the shore and they turn around and they see the Egyptians' dead bodies scattered along and the remembrance in looking at their dead bodies served to remind them that it was through death of some that God provided salvation for them.
my brothers and sisters in the faith. Struggling to trust in your God and the route that he's taken you on? Turn around and look to the beaten and expired body of your Savior. To know that your salvation is secure. And if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you, look there now. In Numbers chapter 21, Israel sins, and part of God's judgment for that sin is he sends snakes. And many individuals get bitten by the snakes and they die. And so the people confess their sin. They say, Moses, help us. What do we do? We need something. We, everybody's dying because of these snakes. And so Moses prays that the Lord would take the serpents away. And the Lord says, no, no, I want you to make a fiery serpent. And I want you to set it on a pole. And if anyone is bitten, they may look at the serpent and they may live. If we were to flip over to the gospel of John, John chapter 3, verse 13, we read, all who believe in the son of man lifted up will have eternal life. You see, the Bible makes clear that we are all infected with a poison that is killing us and that will lead us to eternal ruin, a poison of sin. And yet God has made a way, not through serpents on, on poles, but through the Son of God, the beaten and bloody body of Christ that would have writh in pain on the cross, accomplishing salvation and redemption when he was lifted up and all who would look to him and believe. They can have forgiveness of sin. The Lord has faithfully fulfilled this first installment of his promise to Abraham. And so as the people stood and sat on the other side of the bank, they were reminded how their salvation came at the death of some. We're reminded that one greater than Moses has come to lead an exodus through his death and, who, and through his resurrection that would deliver his people from a bondage that's greater than Egyptian slavery. And so if you're a Christian, then you have experienced an exodus that's much greater than this one. As miraculous as this has been from start to finish, yours is even greater. You've been saved from wrath and from sin and from death through the work of Christ. And so you shouldn't leave this morning envying the salvation of Israel. No, Moses envies your salvation. 1 Peter 1.12 says the angels long to look into the salvation that you have. You have been redeemed, brother and sister in Christ. Take heart. You've witnessed the most impressive act of deliverance. And that should prompt love and fear and belief and trust in him and affections for him and glad obedience to him. And I have the best possible news if you're not a Christian. I have the best news of announcing to you that the sea of God's judgment against your sin remains parted for you to come across even this morning. And that uncrossable sea can happen. You can cross it. By turning from your sin and trusting in the work of Jesus, that perfect life, that death on the cross, and that resurrection on the third day.
if you trust in the exodus that he has provided, you can know security and love and forgiveness and mercy. And that is open until you die. But you don't know when you will die. And so don't delay. Cross that in faith. Or drown in your sin. In eternal wrath and separation from God. He passed through the walls of death. And came out victorious. What's required of you? Trust in his fight for you. And be silent. Trust and believe. And if you've not yet done that, it would be the joy of any person in here to talk to you about that. Tim Keller tells the story of being at R.C. Sproul's house when scholar J. Alec Motier said this about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think of what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan. Having come out of the Red Sea, this is what they would say. If someone were to say, who are you? He would say, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. Our mediator let us out and we crossed over and now we're on our way to the promised land. We're not there yet, but he has given us his law to make us a community. And he's given us the tabernacle because you have to live by grace and forgiveness and his presence in our midst and he's staying and, and he's going to stay with us until we get home. And Maltier said, that's exactly almost word for word what a Christian would say. How the exodus then really looks forward to the greater exodus that Jesus would provide. And we come to remember that exodus and that work in and through the Lord's Supper. And here at Covenant Life, the Lord's Supper is open to baptized believers who are members in good standing of a church that preaches that gospel that you've heard here. Walking in repentance and in reconciliation. And so if that's you, we would invite you to come. And on your way, as, as you're coming to grab the elements would encourage you just to even pray, to think about the work of God that has made life in Christ possible. And if that's not you, we would just encourage you to stay seated and consider the mercy of Christ that's available to you today. I'll pray. Music will begin to play. And then I invite you to come forward. Take the elements. You can go back to your seats, and we'll take them together. Our holy God, thank you for your word. A word that makes clear that you are the God who fights on behalf of your people and you accomplish what we could not on our own. And so as we come to this table, stir within us a new affections for you. May we be led to be obedient to you. And may we trust you wherever you take us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.